Welcome to the Ready to Thrive podcast. My name is Jacqueline, and I don't know if you've ever felt like you are just surviving your life. I know I have, and that's why I created this space. I want to help you move from surviving to thriving. My goal is to help you get unstuck and actually enjoy your life. Each week, I'll be sharing practical tips and always point you to Jesus. So what are you waiting for? Let's get ready to thrive. Hello and welcome to Ready to Thrive. I'm really excited about this mini series we have on Thriver Stories. And before we dive in, I just wanted to share a resource with you that I don't think I've shared on here before. And not because it's so new, but because it's so old. Uh, I've actually had, this is the very first resource I created on my website, JacquelineWeiner.com. It is five days to deep soul rest. And this was a resource that just really poured out of me um, the process that I found I went through, just something I started doing in my everyday life to be experiencing deep peace, deep rest. And I will say it's a practice that I have been doing for a while But if you are looking for something even more uh, substantial, if you're like, I really want to ruthlessly go after deep peace, I would say grab my six-week Tangled course. It's going to take you through a process of finding out what is kind of keeping you from deep peace. Uh, But if you just want a little teaser, a little taste, uh, you can grab my free five days to deep soul rest. And that is linked in the show notes as well as on my website. So I'm excited to dive into this conversation. I know you're going to enjoy it with Tara Bradham. Welcome to Ready to Thrive. I am sitting here with Tara Bradham. She is an inspirational speaker, a podcast host, and an author. And her journey has led her across the world to deliver messages of empowerment and purpose. She writes, coaches, and teaches from her home in Montana, which actually is changing as of this week. And um, Tara has... Uh, really a um, a hard inspirational story um, called Swimming for Freedom, a true story of faith, hope, and victory. And we're going to dive into Tara's story. But uh, first off, Tara, thank you for being on the podcast. And tell me what I have missed out um, in your bio. bio. Tell me a little bit more about yourself. Yeah. Well, thank you, Jacqueline, for having me. I'm excited to be here. And some of that needs to be updated because it came out just a year ago and my life changes very rapidly. So we are moving to Vancouver, Washington, not Canada. And I'm no longer a coach, although I was, so I've gone full-time into the ministry that we're doing. And other than that, yeah, I'm kind of from nowhere. I grew up in Austin, but now, you know, lived in South America, went to school in Arkansas and then Montana and now Washington. I'm just getting all over. I wouldn't say nowhere. I would say more like everywhere. You've just been all over the place. Um, Well, I want to dive into your story that um, really starts about um, the theme going around your life is being in the pool, is swimming. And so tell me how that started for you. 
so neither of my parents swam which is hilarious you're like oh of course your parents and we just went to the neighborhood swim pool and a high school aged lifeguard said ma'am do you know that you have breaststrokers and so if you're unfamiliar with swimming basically if your feet turn out when you walk you're probably going to be a breaststroker and likewise if your feet are straight or turn in naturally it's very hard to be a breaststroker because it's the most unnatural movement in all of sports to turn your feet that way. And so that's what he saw in my brother and me. And she had no idea. And he's like, you need to get them in swimming lessons or they need to swim club. And she was like, okay. And we never looked back from them, but it's just, I can't get over that. Uh, there's a book called Just a Minute and it's about how one minute changed these children's lives. And I feel like that was a minute for me where this high school lifeguard, I'm like, does he ever know what he did to my life trajectory? Now, how old were you when that happened? I must have been five-ish if we weren't swimming at all. Yeah. Because we did summer league first and then got into club. Okay. So from the place of... I feel like in some ways this like scares me for what I what I put my kids into because I know for myself having been like a competitive ice skater and then a competitive rower like you do have that thing where you're like we're just gonna try this thing we're just gonna and then you don't realize how no you can actually then this can become your life and so swimming became your life what did it look like for you at like the age of eight how often were you going to the pool and competing and all that Yeah. So eight is actually when I went to double swim practices a day. So I was already training year round and swimmers. I know it's very, they say ice skating, swimming, and gymnastics are the most intense or the most time consuming sports. And so I'm sure you understand. And so, I mean, even then you're going to nine practices a week. We actually were driving between 30 and 45 minutes one way, twice a day. So homework in the car at eight years old and chasing the dream. Yeah. I, I just had that memory of having, my mom used to give me these, like, it's like this white corning wear um, that she would bring. I'm amazed. She would bring me dinner in as she picked me up from skating and took me to the like my music lessons and it would be this full meal whereas now I'm like oh my I would for sure be just going through a fast food restaurant or something like I don't know how she managed to again it was a amazing uh, the club we started skating with wasn't necessarily even the closest club to us and I think my parents grew to regret that at some point because it was so much longer in the car yeah um but you're doing all these multiple swim practices and then when was the point where you really started competing and what did that look like so at that point I already was competing so eight years old I mean swimming in Texas is super intense and so you have South Texas age group championships and then North Texas and so I was South Texas I'm from Austin and then you have Texas state championships and that's age group and so at eight years old I believe I was the first eight-year-old to qualify for 10 and under for the state championship. And I won a race at the South Texas championship at age eight, which was, um, yeah, something new. Unheard of. Yeah. Yes. So yeah, I was competing at that point. That's, it was already getting real. Right. And so you even developed this nickname. What was the nickname that you were given and why? So they called me Tara the Terror, and that was from my summer league coach. And I have a very intense personality. I say 
you know, everyone likes to win, but the people who really win are those who hate to lose. And I did hate to lose. And so just put me in the pool and I would try to be nice outside the pool, right? But inside the pool, you were my worst enemy. And I just would, yeah, do anything to win. So you get like, just paint a picture for me, somebody who has really no experience with swimming. Um, what did it look like around the age of 10 for you to be um, really dominating across the country? So what does that look like? Yeah. So there are a lot of events in swimming for one. So I w- became the fastest in my age in the country in about three events. And there are probably, I don't know, I'll estimate 12 events. And so it wasn't across the board, but I went to state championship and I swept that. So I won seven of seven races you could win. And then my parents wanted me to have a chance at getting state records and they had figured out my personality and this would not work for a lot of kids, but they knew me. And sometimes parents would smack talk about me to them and that would just fire me up and I would just go demolish the race. And so they started kind of like making things up like, Hey, did you know so-and-so said this about you? And then I, then I caught on to what they were doing, but they knew that I was a racer, like just give me someone to chase and to race and I would demolish times. And so they found a girl in California who was close to me and the IM and different things. And so my parents actually flew me to California to help me have a good race. And she actually ended up becoming a gold medal Olympian later. And so, yeah. Um, So needless to say, you were basically um, at this peak um, at the age of 10, which is crazy because my oldest daughter is going to be 10. Um, in the summer. And I, I'm trying to think, I mean, she's very good hula hooper. Um, she (laughs) loves Lego, but we're definitely not in that same kind of like, that was your life was being this competitive swimmer. And so really so much of your story is, um, what happened after that in terms of having this injury and living with chronic pain. And so what happened, um, with your injury? Yeah. So take that a few years later. So for about three years, I was still at the top of my age group and they have these rankings in each event, top 16 in the country, and that comes out. And so I maintained that until I was 12, almost 13 years old. And I was at the state championship for that age group 11 and 12. And I had won six of the seven events and I wanted that perfect sweep again at the top of my age group. And the last race was the 50 freestyle, which is the shortest race in the sport. So it's the biggest sprint and you only get a couple breaths by the time you get older you don't breathe at all and so I dove in and could see that this girl was right next to me and I took that final breath coming home and I lunged into the wall to try to beat her and I heard the stands go nuts and at that point you knew I knew it's like you know you want to see Michael Phelps break a record or get beaten but it's just like he just kind of wins another race you're like eh that's that's whatever and so I wasn't close to a record and so I assumed I had lost and then I looked at the scoreboard and I saw two number ones and so we had tied to the hundredth in the race and so I got the seventh gold but I had this insane pain going through my arm and I pulled up on the block to get out and I walked to the other side to warm down after my race and I remember taking three strokes and I couldn't begin to do it through the pain. And I was like, you know what? It was my last race. And so did the whole award ceremony. It was a three hours away from our home. And so 
I remember getting in the car and just saying, hey, my shoulder really hurts. And, you know, my parents were just, we were kind of on the high of the weekend and, you know, of course your shoulder hurts after a, a meet that intense. And so I got up to go to practice the next morning and I could only lift my arm a few inches and things progressed from there. So what happened next? What was the um, diagnosis? How did they kind of move on from from there? So to start with, there was no diagnosis and it was an absolute nightmare, perfect storm scenario where I had been so good so young that people said I was going to be a 12 year old wonder and then I stopped improving and they were like, well, this is because you can't handle not being the best anymore. So you're making up this shoulder injury. But after that initial incident, I kicked with my arms at my side for a while and it didn't get better. We got a cortisone shot in each shoulder, which they stuck in through the back, um, accidentally nicked an artery, which caused a hole in my lung. Went to practice, swam on that, which is insanity. Thinking about my death and who would miss me if I was gone and so much pain. And I kept swimming. And so that all the air went into my chest cavity and my throat sounded like I was on helium. They said, if you would have gone to another practice, you would have died. And so that was a catalyst for me to start really questioning like, well, what would happen if I died? And what is faith? And so that was eighth grade. And at that point, we still had no diagnosis for my shoulder. So at this point, um, you've been in pain, you've had this injury, but but no one has been able to find the cause, right? Like, like yeah. how long did you go swimming through pain, having these other, like, almost these um, attempts at fixes, right, with the mm -hmm. cortisone shot, which actually made it worse um, with the lungs? And how long was that before you actually got a real diagnosis? I don't know how much you want me to share so far, but initially five years and then eventually seven. So after five years, my senior year of high school, they decided to go in, even though they didn't think they would find anything in exploratory surgery. And then they finally found that my shoulder was detached from the bone, but that's after I was swimming through it. And I have a crazy pain tolerance was the other problem. And so people would say, right. well, you're making this up. And I'd be like, fine, I'll prove you wrong and go harder until I couldn't lift my arm again. And then I started getting all of these compensation injuries, which led us to that first surgery, which we thought was the, the final diagnosis, but it wasn't. Um, yeah, that, that whole thing to me is unbelievable that um, you would continue to be competing, continue to be swimming, um, even despite having this chronic pain and um did you feel like after that five years you were like whew okay finally we have a diagnosis and things oh, will yeah. get better yes I was like okay because God broke me to the point in that five years of realizing that swimming was a total idol in my life and I completely put that ahead of God and I sat down on the bench with my coach crying and was like I have to quit because I put this above God and I did and a couple weeks later he was like go back I'm going to use this to give you a platform you would have never had without this sport but it's going to be for my glory and so I had just accepted well maybe I'm here to just witness to my teammates who might not otherwise ever get to hear about Christ and then they found it and I was like oh my gosh I've been swimming since I was on track to go to the Olympics with a shoulder that's been torn off the bone like what could I do if it's fixed and so I was like God humbled me and now we're we're gonna get back on track and it's gonna be awesome and we're gonna write a book and all the things and that wasn't the case 
no, no. So not. tell us, tell us what happened after that. So I can appreciate that feeling of like, okay, this is this is what all of this pain was for. This is what you know. God, mm-hmm. you did a work in me, and now we've got this diagnosis. Now I get to move forward. Now, now I can heal properly. Now I can mm-hmm. actually go towards this dream. And so, what happened after that? So that was my senior of high school. So I went to the University of Arkansas to swim, went early to rehab after my first surgery, and I registered to continue healing, but I came back in less than a year to miss Olympic trials by a few tenths of a second, which the first surgeon wrote career ending on my chart from the first surgery. And so he said, you know, you might never get a best time again. And if you do, it'll be years. And within a year ish, I came back and almost qualified for Olympic trials. And then from that effort, my shoulder really wasn't that much better. And after all this rehab and thinking, oh, this is it. I was still in tremendous pain. I actually believed that I must have ripped the repair out and ripped the anchor out by pushing too hard too soon because it was such a sharp pain. I mean, just sitting in class and I would jump out of my chair involuntarily because it would shoot through my arm. And so I was like, okay, well, I must have torn it again and we need to do another surgery to fix it. And so they went in a second time and they found all of this stuff, you know, scar tissue and inflammation and different things. But they said, you know, overall, the repair looks perfect. And, you know, your first surgeon was incredible. And we have no idea why you're in this much pain. And I was like, okay, well, I mean, you can't argue with that. You know, I had a lot of MRIs and CAT scans and different things that um, were not as accurate, but you can't argue with people who have been inside your shoulder. And so after that, then I was like, a week later was back in the pool and was like, okay, well, this is clearly all in my head. And so all I need to do is overcome my body. And so uh, my life promise is Jeremiah 33, six through nine, where God says, I will bring health and healing to you. I will rebuild you as you were before, and you will enjoy abundant peace and security. I will forgive all your sins against me. And then you will bring me renown, glory, praise, and honor before all the nations on earth that hear of what I do for you. And they will tremble and fear and be in awe of the abundant peace and prosperity I provide for you. He gave that to me my freshman year of college. And so for me, I believe that God had said, you need to keep swimming. And so I was doing this, obviously, I think everyone has mixed intentions, but for the most part, with the intentions of this is obedience, and this is what you've called me to, and I believe that every nation would tremble and fear was clearly the Olympics, because what else could it be with my current situation? And so I went back to swimming after the second surgery, and things got really, really bad. And I lost my quality of life and I was 19 years old and I could not turn off a light switch without keeling over. And I was like, God, like I did this because you told me to swim. Like if I maybe had quit swimming, maybe I would be living a healthy life right now. And so to get to that point where you're begging to die because you're in so much pain, And I did eventually quit swimming and surgeons said, if you would just quit swimming, you'd be fine. You just have surgical pain because you keep swimming on it and it got worse. And that's when I turned off a light switch, keeled over, couldn't breathe. I, they said, you can't do anything until you can put on a backpack without pain. And I never could. 
And so I would just go up on this hill at Arkansas called Mount Sequoia that overlooked the city. And I would just pray in circles uh, per Circle Maker by Mark Batterson. And that's, I was like, God, like I, I'm finished, you know? And he, he said, answers are coming. But I was like, I don't know how long I can wait for those. And so I don't know if you want to ask another question, but that was yeah. getting to the darkest place. Yeah, I just want to hear more about that, um, being in that dark place, because I think, like, up until this point, you've already gone through so much, and now you've given up swimming, which everybody has said, this is going to be the answer, mm -hmm. and yet it's not, it's actually getting worse, and you're living with such chronic pain that you're believing this, it actually would be better if I died. Mm -hmm. Um, and so tell me what that looked like for you. Um, even in the place of like wrestling with God, why I thought you, I thought I was being obedient. I think so many people, even if they haven't been in a place of chronic pain can, can appreciate that, um, sentiment of like, I did all, I did all these things, God, I did what I felt like you were calling me to. So why am I here? Like, why am I yeah. in this place? And so um, what was that like for you? Yeah, I don't think we know the answer if we're, when we're asking those questions. And I think, honestly, it's good to ask those questions because sometimes I feel like we're like, we can't ask God that. Well, ask, grapple, fight with him, like wrestle like Jacob, right? Because if we're not wrestling with him, we're, we're going to lose sight of him, right? And so, yeah, in this place, I mean, I chucked my Bible across the room and yelled at God. And I said, you're not a good father. How could any father watch me and I know you could lift the nail on your pinky finger and I'd be healed completely how could you watch this and not heal me like forget swimming like this is my life and you know everyone's like you're never going to pick up your kids you're never going to have a normal life and I'm like <laughs> the and I hate to say that it was this serious you know like because losing swimming or my health made me question my faith but it did because I'm like God if I did this for you Either I don't hear your voice correctly, or you're not who I think you are, or you don't exist. And, and one of those three, or I would say now looking back, it's not what I thought. And I think Jesus very often is not who we think he is. I think he's better. But do you want me to go into the hope yeah. or? You yeah. Keep, and so, sorry, just keep going. <laughs> so in that place, I think you have to hang on long enough to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And I think, you know, I, I just picture the parable where Jesus is talking about what you built your house on and have you built your house on the rock? Well, at that point, I had that rock foundation, but everything else had blown down. I mean, there was nothing around me, you know, and you're picturing this tornado and I felt like I was just clinging on by fingertips and they were just like being pulled off one by one by one. And what I realized is like, even cause I thought if I let go, like there's no going back. Like I'm just going to get sucked in this tornado and I'm never going to see the light of day again. And my faith will be gone. And when you let go, the thing is, is like, God grabs onto you. Like he has a hand too, you know? And I just, I think sometimes we will beat down a closed door because it's easier than going through the open door God has laid out for us. And that open door was swimming. And so 
it sounds insane. And I, I also think God is a drama king. And I don't think we like to grapple with that all the time as Christians of this like last minute, most dramatic entry. Let's give a ram right when Isaac is on the altar faith. And like you see that in the Bible, like he loves showing up with impeccable timing. And, you know, people are like, well, God's God's never late. Like, well, you know, he's never early either. Right. And so that timing for me is what he just was, his grace was so perfect in getting me through. So I had agreed to study abroad in Spain for a month. And that was something I've been looking forward to for so long. So even though I couldn't swim, I had this great adventure. And I mean, while I was there, I remember texting my mom and just saying, I don't want to live anymore. Like I can't live in this pain. Even, you know, I'm sitting here like eating a baguette in Paris and I'm like, I can't enjoy it. Like there's just so much pain. And so my parents raised me and knew that I didn't exaggerate things like that. And so they were like, we're going to figure this out. And so they found a surgeon in Denver, one of the best in the country. And they made an appointment for me the couple of days after I got back from Spain. So I flew into my layover in Dallas and instead of flying back to Arkansas, my parents picked me up and we went to the surgeon in Denver and drove there. And he was like, you know, I don't, I don't know, like they've already been in, but I can do one last ditch effort if things, if, if we decide in a month that this PT still isn't working, which ended up happening. And I, when I couldn't turn off the light switch, that was right then. And I mean, I had an absolute mental breakdown that night, just curled in fetal position saying, God, like I have fought and fought and fought for seven years. And like, I can't fight anymore. Like I've done this whole, like your grace is sufficient for me. I've said it hundreds of times a day and like you didn't show up. And so like heal me or take me home, but like, don't leave me like this. I can't live like this. And three days after that, I went back for surgery. And honestly, like I had just migraines from being in so much pain all the time. I mean, you know, in my first surgery, I had this childlike faith of like, I just knew they were going to find something in this surgery. I was like, I don't know, like, it's just this last ditch effort. And so they went in and they, first off, they found my shoulders actually so unstable. It just seemed really strong, even doing the resistance tests because I was still swimming on it. And so all those muscles around it were protecting it, but it was crazy unstable from compensating for seven years. And then he cut off my bicep tendon and underneath the tendon. So they couldn't see it until they literally cut it off and flipped it over. It had started degenerating. So basically rotting. And so he had to cut that part of my biceps out and then that's attached lower. So I'm missing about an inch of my tendon that's attached lower into my bone. And then he had to rebuild and tighten about 75% of the shoulder. So basically a bionic arm. And I woke up in a body brace and the recovery room. And I remember looking at the clock and seeing how long the surgery took. And I just thought like, they found it. I don't, I don't know what it was, but they found something. So that was the, the final diagnosis figuring eventually it would have gotten a hole from degenerating. And then probably that, that part of the tendon that has two attachments would have snapped and severed, but they don't really know. They can't explain a lot, but my immune system was shutting down at the same time. I mean, I, I say God saved my life literally, whether it was, you know, eventually through my own hands, cause I had those thoughts or from whatever my body was doing. And so if you look at it from that perspective, 
I was like, God, you know, everyone, I did this for you and you've turned my life into a living hell basically. And actually what's happening is if I hadn't have kept swimming, they might not have gone in for a third time and they might not have found what they found. And I might have been dead. And you look at like, you never would have thought that in a million years. And he knew that all along. What happened after that? Because I'm just thinking like that's there's so much there that you um, I mean, there's so much there that you just shared in terms of our limited perspective and even in that place of pain that um, the pain you wanted to go away was actually pointing out the thing that was still not healed in your body I mean it's such a profound um picture even I think about the the pain we feel in our life in um in any area of our life right like Mm -hmm. the not the chronic physical pain but the pain we feel is often pointing to something in us that you know still needs that place of healing and really God is that great physician for us um so you wake up and you're how long did it take for you to realize, okay, they've, something has changed. Like they've, they found this thing and what, like what, what happens in your life from that point moving forward in terms of chronic pain, in terms of, um, where you're going with your life? Yeah. So also on what you're talking about, the gift of pain is an incredible book by Philip Yancey and Dr. Paul Brand that is, talks about that. And you know, this whole time I thought my body was betraying me and it was actually like, hey, something's still really wrong. Even though every doctor you could possibly imagine has told you that it's not, it is. And so, yes, I, it's hard to possibly describe pain that way, but I really do think it's a gift. He worked with leprosy patients who he actually, there was this huge stigma and they thought that their fingers would just fall off and everything else. And it, this is graphic. Is that okay? Yeah, yeah. So they actually were losing sensation and people with leprosy, all of almost all of their injuries were because they couldn't feel pain. And so losing their fingers wasn't losing their fingers. It was rats would come eat them off at night because they couldn't feel it. And so Dr. Paul Brand was like, I know people who live in pain would never think of this as a gift, but I work with people who can't feel pain and it is a gift. And so like, what is going on? You know, that friend hurt you. Okay. Well, like, what does that mean? Like, how do we take that to the Lord? Because something's not right. Like that's an indicator of, of the fall and the brokenness. So like, where's the redemption and the resurrection in, in that? So, uh, after I woke up in a body brace, I was in a body brace for, I believe four weeks and then a sling for six more. By the time my arm came out of the sling around my biceps and triceps, if you put your hand around that and my physical therapist could close his finger, like his thumb over his middle finger around my upper part of my arm, which if you do that while you're listening, you know, be careful if you're driving, but that is a tiny, it's like a stick. It's like basically your bone. And so it was really disgusting. And he had a freckle test as I got stronger because I have so many freckles on my arms that where his fingers would get to, we watched my arm grow back and muscle. But I really believe, I mean, they told me that they found something major that 
I didn't really understand what it was. And my physical therapist became my coach in that time. And he told me that he didn't think I could really handle the severity of how serious it was. And so I actually didn't understand that it was degenerating until a few months after the surgery. And it was when I was having a mental breakdown on his physical therapy table and like, why am I doing this? And he's like, Tara, like, I just need to put this in perspective for you. Like you had arguably one of the biggest surgeries you can have on an arm. And if you were to pick the hardest sport you could possibly pick to try to do after that surgery, it would be swimming. And if you wanted to pick the hardest event in that sport to swim after it, it would be the 400 IM that you're trying to race in. He's like, this is like the hardest thing you could be attempting. He's like, I need to tell you at that point, I interviewed my surgeon and he said it was a different kind of degeneration. So semantically it's not, but I was told, and it was somewhere in my charts that my shoulder is actually necrotic, which was a really big deal at, at that point. And so regardless, it was some kind of degeneration. And he told me that. And when he told me that you'd think I'd be like, oh my gosh, like, well, who can come back from that? Right. That's what everyone else thought. And I was like, well, man, if that's what's wrong, like, let's go the Olympics. <laughs> like, you know, if, if I've been swimming through that. And so in that my coach and I did not have a good relationship. And so that fell apart, which prompted me, I felt like God told me to go to Texas A&M, which was a top five program at the time in Arkansas was top 20. And so crazy story in that, but I ended up going to swim for Texas A&M fully believing that God had already told me I was going to write a book, that this would be an incredible story with an incredible coach and things again, did not turn out that way. Yeah. And how did you, how did you, um, once again, wrestle through that disappointment? Cause I feel like that's again, something that is so relatable when, when we feel like, oh, okay, God, like, this is what I thought you were doing. No, this is, and it can feel like kind of that pivot or that thing where he's like, no, 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 I've, this is all for a reason. And again, you're like, well, I've, I'm now on the road to recovery and I'm actually going towards my dream. Mm -hmm. um, how did you wrestle with that? Like, okay, this still isn't turning out the way I thought it was going to look. Yeah. So in the pool, I was in arguably worse pain than I was in before, actually. Outside of the pool, it was a miracle, and I was in almost no pain. And I mean, to the point where I would try to swim, and if I overdid it, I would literally curl up and scream in fetal position in the middle of the pool, unable to keep going. Not like I stopped, because I didn't think I could keep going. Like, my body was like, no. And so I had to, like, go down to half the practices that everyone else was doing. You know, I was sitting there training with Olympians, one of the Olympic coaches. And one of my biggest fears is humiliation. And it was just humiliating to think that he gave me a chance and let me walk onto this team and I can't even pull my own weight. And I think there was so much God had to break in me with pride of being willing to do the best that I could do and know that that was enough. And I think I, I came to terms with, well, clearly if God's not gonna heal me, even medicinally, like fully, then I don't think I can go to the Olympics, but what can I do? And so I just latched on to, well, I can at least qualify for Olympic trials. Like that's the one thing that no one could ever take away from me. It's arguably one of the fastest meets in the world and I could just get there. And at least that would be a good ending for my book. 
Well, spoiler, I missed Olympic trials again by a few tenths of a second after changing my events, all of that. And that was the end of my career. And I was like, God, no one wants to read this story. Like you've told me to write a book. Like who wants to read that? Like all this roller coaster, all this overcoming. And then guess what? It's not what you think again. It's not the Hollywood finish. It's failure. And so he told me to go on the world race. And so I spent a year in South America and I really, in that first month had to grapple with my friends of, of just that feeling of failure, but then also feeling like in a sense, God had failed me really. If you, if you look at that of like, you told me to swim again, like you told, you told me to write a book and swim. So what, like, what am I supposed to do with this? And I just kept taking small steps of obedience and I just didn't walk away. And I think that's the thing, you know, I'm a, I'm a part of a writing club here and I was there last night and I took one of the pieces I'm working on there. And I thought it was going to be a great testimony of what God could do in someone's life. I'm writing someone else's story. And one of the women said, you know, this piece would turn me against Christianity and make me hate Christians. And I was flabbergasted and I've been processing that. And I think the difference is, I don't know. I don't know her story. I think there's a lot of hurt there. I think she's grappled with a lot of things and comes to the conclusion that God is not good and that he's not real. And I've grappled with a lot of things and hung on and have found the opposite, that he is good and he is real. And this isn't, these promises aren't a band-aid of like, well, God doesn't heal people, but there's heaven. No, that's reality. And like, you can hold those at the same time of the pain of this world and the fact that you are already seated in heaven next to Jesus, right? You are plucked from eternity, placed in time. And, and that's all real. Like Paul said, if Christ was not resurrected, we are to be pitied above all other men. And so I say that to say that even in this place where you're saying, I don't understand, I don't know if God is good, like, hang on, like keep getting in the word because if you're there, like I promise you, he is like, you can't see it any other way. And I think sometimes we just sit back and cross our arms in this cynicism and say, God show up in my life. And it's like, instead of sitting back and waiting, like look for him, like, yeah, maybe his answer isn't what you think, but are you looking? Is it different than what you thought? And so yeah, I thought I was going to go to the Olympics and minister to athletes and maybe, you know, like speak at a bunch of FCAs across the country. That was like the ultimate dream. And instead, like I failed and I wrote the book anyway, and God provided an amazing, crazy thing, getting me a publisher that was a hundred percent God. And it was even the, the target avatar, the publisher had me do, right? They're like, it's an athlete. It's, it's an athlete who's been through an injury. And it's so funny because yes, the book does apply to that person, but it's not even a sports memoir at all. Like the people who reach out to me are the people who live in chronic pain. The people who have been so disappointed with God that they don't know how to move forward. And the people who have just had disappointment and God's not who they thought he was, but he's better.
right? And then he turned that into now what I'm doing, which I never saw coming, but should have, is like, I'm creating a ministry for people who live in pain. And you know what? People can actually relate to failure more than they can relate to success because not many people come back and win the Olympics. But there are a lot of people who trust God and step out of faith and feel like they walked out on that branch and the branch fell underneath him and where you go from there. And so I know it's so hard to see in the fog, but Jesus is the light, right? Like all the darkness in the world can't overcome the light shed by a single flame. And so I would say like, where's that light? Look, look for that light. And, you know, people are like, I'm in a wasteland. I'm in a wasteland. I don't hear God. I'm like, well, are you reading the word? Are you praying? Are you going to church? Are you fellowshipping? Are you getting away and letting God speak to you? Because typically, I don't know, but most of the time when I ask that question, there's, there's one of those or, or multiple that, that people aren't doing. And, you know, the pain of discipline is less than the pain of regret, right? And even in the place where you're in so much pain, like don't push God away, pull him close and fight with him. Like he can handle it. Well, I think he definitely uses those places of pain to draw us back to himself and that he is always there, right? Like it is that he always has that invitation of like, come to me when you seek me, you will find me. Yeah. And um, it's definitely easy to, uh, to be, like you said, to be angry at God, to be disappointed, but that when we go to him with those really raw emotions, we're like, I'm so, I'm so mad at you. I'm so disappointed. I'm so hurt that he, we can wrestle with him. Like you said, that you can wrestle with him. And that's, I think, even those places that really open up um, just this honesty that is where we can then feel him close. Because he's like, I, I, I want to be here for you, um, but I want you to be honest with me in that place yeah. and, and, and bring him um, that hurt and that pain. And I think for, for the people listening who, you know, may not necessarily have the chronic physical pain, I know that for so many of us, we walk through life with other pain. And for you, you know, it was, it took a third surgery to find the root of that invisible pain, right? Like it, you couldn't see it on the outside. It was only when the surgeon was able to get in there and find where that place of like the crazy thing for this story is that degenerative um, tissue that would have taken your life, right? Like he found the root of that pain. And I think that's the place for each of us as well of like, what is the root of our pain that is really, um, it's really that thing that's wanting to kind of take us out. And so I think it is that invitation as we go to him and we wrestle even in those hard places, especially in those hard places. And um, I know for so many of us that that's been really evident this year as the pressure and the stress of all of these things, it, um, it tends to bring our pain points to the surface. Mm -hmm. And the, the beautiful thing about that, I was talking to somebody about this this morning, is that once we have those things come to the surface, then we get to do something about them, right? Like for you, this place of healing was able to happen once the actual um, place of the wound was identified. Mm -hmm. And so when those things come up, it's like, oh, it kind of feels like 
gross. It feels hard. Like you were saying, like God has done so much in your heart, the unstripping of these idols and these other things. And when those things come up, we can feel like I'm I'm the worst person mm-hmm. ever. I, ho- I hope no one ever finds out just how selfish I am yeah. and how, you know, all of these things. And God's like, I know. I already know those things. Bring them to me because really I'm the one who is going to heal you mm-hmm. from the inside out. Um, I love that you were talking about this ministry um, that you have started. Can you just tell me a little bit about that as we wrap it up here? Yeah. So the ministry is called Heal. So it started with the podcast. So we believe, and this is the complexity, more grappling, total aside, but you talked about this. I do love Mark Batterson. I heard him say in an interview recently that he's getting to the point where he almost doesn't trust leaders who don't walk with a limp. So going back to that Jacob analogy, right, of yeah, you're, if you wrestle with God, like you're going to walk away with a limp and you might have that limp your whole life, but you're going to be walking with God. And it might not be the perfect faith, cheery on the outside, you know, everything put together, but it's real. And I would rather walk any day with God with a limp than not have him with me. So even if you walk away with a limp, like keep, keep wrestling. Uh, so we believe that God heals people in the way that brings us the him the most glory and in the way that brings us closest to him. And that's the thesis I've come to walking through this pain. And so that includes miraculous healing. I've seen miraculous. I've experienced it. I absolutely believe God still heals in that way, but not always. And so what do you do if that's not the case? I believe he totally uses medicinal healing. I, I am huge benefactor of that. And I think there's what we call sufficient grace. So for all we know, we're not healed right now. And, you know, this could be talking to someone with depression, not just physical pain, right? Of saying, you know, like, why does this other person miraculously delivered and they never look back and I am still struggling with this. Like I thought when I came to Christ, it would just be a a fix everything in that moment. And it's this healing of dependence that he's after in that. And it's just so beautiful. And, you know, sometimes if I'm not battling something crazy spiritually, I almost miss it. That place of just because the pain was so deep, God's love was so real. And it's like when you get away from that depth of pain, it's so easy to get away from that depth of dependence and relationship. So And the fourth way is ultimate healing, which is in heaven. And I absolutely believe that's the best healing. And sometimes, you know, we, we don't see that as healing because it's the ultimate breaking of God's will for us, right? In the fall and separation in this life, but it is. And so my heart is to, in this ministry, not give people necessarily physical recommendations or anything like that. I try to stay away from that, but just talk about the spiritual side of what happens if you're not healed and what does that mean? And, you know, but then the complexity of sometimes I've heard of someone had a lump in her breast and realized that she was really bitter. God revealed that to her. She repented and the lump went away. And so you can't say, you know, I was really offended when people said, well, this is a sin issue in your life. And I'm like, no, it's not. It never is. No, it, it has been sometimes. And so it's like, 
man, like, does he heal miraculously? Yes, but not always. Does he use doctors? Yes, but not always. And so it's, it's just so complex. And I heard a term that describes what we do is cognitive laziness, because we don't want to grapple with that, that God is that complex. But it's, he's after healing more than just your, your body. He's after healing all of you. He's after that resurrection of your heart. And so I believe all pain is equally valid. I talk about physical pain just because it's more my story, um, but that's not to say, you know, mental illness and all of that is, is every bit as real. I just, on the podcast and ministry, we tend to focus on the physical just because I see that as a huge hole in the church that uh, we don't treat people very well who are in physical pain and not healed. And we don't provide many resources for them to still be included in the body and still use their gifts. And so it's turned into some retreats and then we're making some other resources as well and going from there. Well, that's awesome. Tara, um, it's been great to hear your story and um, really so much that you have been through and wrestled with. And um, and I'm excited to see where your ministry goes. Um, where can people find you and where can they find your book? So Instagram, and I'm not really on Twitter, but they're both at Tara Bradham, T-E-R-A, looks like Bradham. And then the website is same thing, tarabradham.com. And then the healministry.com is heals website. And so and the, the podcast is on Spotify and Apple, wherever you're listening to this, it is there as well. So that's where you can find me. And the book is on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and anything like that. Well, that's awesome. I know that um, there are going to be people listening who are going to definitely identify with the chronic pain um, as well as just the, the pain that so many of us walk through in other areas. So thank you for sharing your story. And I trust this has helped listeners move one step closer to thriving. Can I just say thank you for listening? This space has been incredibly encouraging for me this past year. And as I am being deeply encouraged by these conversations, I trust you are as well. And I'm not going to ask you to rate the show or subscribe but I am going to ask if while you were listening today, a friend popped into your mind and you thought, hmm, I think they could use this encouragement. Can I ask you to share this episode with them, with one person? When I listen to podcasts on my phone, there are three little dots at the bottom right, and I click there to share. Also, can I say sometimes I don't share with others as I'm worried about what they'll think of me if they think I'm bugging them by sharing something, but... When someone shares something with me, I am never bothered. Often it is the exact thing I needed to hear. So if someone popped into your mind, click those three little dots and share this encouraging conversation with them. And thank you for listening to Ready to Thrive.